Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Energy Geoscience and MRCI podcast. My name is Autumn Hagsma, and my co-host is Rochelle Kernan. We have a very special guest today. I am honored to introduce Dr. Sally Greenberg. Sally is a principal research scientist for the Illinois State Geological Survey at the University of Illinois Prairie Research Institute. Welcome, Sally. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's really lovely to be here with both of you. I'm going to kick us off with our first question. Uh, can you tell us about your career journey, perhaps starting with where you grew up, where you went to college, how you chose your field, and, and more about your career history? Sure. Um, it's a long story, but I'll keep it. I'll keep it concise. Um, I was. Uh, I'm from Michigan in the United States. I was born in Southeast Michigan, in a place called Pontiac, uh, and um, born and and raised there. Moved to Ann Arbor when I was in high school, and um, really got for the first time exposed to living in what we call a Big Ten college town, which is a very large university community with all the bells and whistles and performing arts centers and science museums and art museums and uh, just a whole lot of academic variety. Um, I was not a particularly good student um, and, <laughs> Shockingly, perhaps at 17, thought I knew more than the adults around me. And um, so decided to really choose my own path. Um, I, I have to say my path in life hasn't been particularly straightforward. I, um, uh, in the summer between my junior year and senior year in high school, my mother and I took a trip to Europe and it was my first overseas experience and that really was a game changer for me that the world was so much bigger than i was and that there were five-year-olds that spoke languages that i couldn't understand and yeah it was just very very um eye-opening growth producing and my goal then became to have an experience living overseas so instead of going straight to college i became an exchange student with Youth for Understanding, and I ended up, I wanted to go to a French-speaking country, and because I was very enamored with French. My French teacher in high school did not agree and did not recommend me very highly for a French-speaking country. So I, um, I ended up in Denmark, uh, which was really a really, really great place mm -hmm. for me, and I have a, a big, warm place in my heart for Scandinavia. Um, so I went, I lived a year in Denmark while I was, um, there, my mother moved from Michigan to California. And at that time in the eighties, if you were a resident of California, you could go to college for free. Mm -hmm. And so that was my mother's financial strategy for me going to college. So I came back, I went to a community college for a year. Again, at 19, thinking I knew more than the adults around me, decided to quit school and because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I just couldn't attach the learning to anything. So I got a job at the Monterey Bay Aquarium when it first opened, and I was a ticket taker mm -hmm. at the Monterey Bay Aquarium for a number of years, a few years. 
And, um, but also, uh, my mother lovingly cut the purse strings at that point. She said, if you don't want to go to college, I no longer have an obligation to support you. Um, which I don't necessarily recommend, but it is a, it was a strategy that worked with me and, um, I grew up really fast. So, uh, kind of living by my wits. Um, eventually I moved to Chicago and I was a secretary in Chicago until my mid twenties. And then, uh, at 25, I had the realization that I was a quarter of a century year years old. And, um, if I wanted to make something of my life, I probably needed to get on with it or I was going to be somebody's secretary until I was 65. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was the resurgence of the earth day, um, and, and environmental movement. It was, it was the 20th anniversary of earth day at around that time. There were lots of books about what could you personally do? Uh, to benefit the environment and how could we change our behaviors and things like that. And I decided I was going to go back to school for environmental studies. Mm-hmm. So I applied to lots of different colleges and because I had been working for a living, um, I couldn't get a lot of financial aid because mm-hmm. uh, colleges assumed that I had money which was not true. I was literally quitting my job, giving it all up to, to go do something else. Uh, but Alfred University in Western New York, which is a small private liberal arts college, uh, which has a, an, ex, an excellent environmental studies program, accepted me and gave me a lot of financial aid. My first day at Alfred, my undergrad advisor, Dr. Michelle Lukey said to me, if you want to have an impact in the world and you want to do something for the environment, my advice to you is to double major in one of the hard sciences. Mm -hmm. So I had not been, had not thought of myself as good in math and science, and I wasn't particularly interested in those things. Growing up, my whole school trajectory was about the humanities. It was really not about science or math. And so there I am in Michelle's office and she's like, yeah, I think you should double major in either uh, physics, chemistry, or geology. And I was like, "Hmm, ah, okay, (laughs) geology sounds the least scary of those things. I'll go with geology. Um, But she wasn't wrong. You know, Mm -hmm. she was actually very, very right. And um, that piece of career advice uh, put me on a path that leads me to where I am today. And the thing that I value the most about my education and my career is that I'm a scientist first and, uh, and, and a geologist, which has its own diverse and divine you know, associations with it. Um, but every, every challenge, every problem, every scientific research question I come at from a science perspective Mm -hmm. and I really enjoy bringing the um, pragmatic objective voice to questions that are increasingly not objective um, and and require a lot of different perspectives but so those are those are my humble beginnings.
a path I never intended to be on, but here I am. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you so much for that, Sally. It was, I think a lot of our listeners will find that to be really inspiring. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, right now, there is a lot going on within the CCUS field. You occasionally hear about it on the news. Uh, if you follow social media, it's a big thing on LinkedIn, for example, even Twitter. Uh, could you tell us some of the important things uh, that are happening right now? Sure. Um, I'll step back two steps and then I'll step forward 10 steps. But <clears throat> um, carbon capture utilization and storage has is a field that has been researched and um, forming for probably the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have had the good fortune to be involved in that since the very beginning. And some of your listeners may know that I led a project in Decatur, Illinois, that captured and stored a million tons of carbon dioxide. Um, and that carbon dioxide was captured from ethanol production. Okay. So um, I've had the opportunity to see all of the parts of the CCUS industry value chain uh, demonstration program permitting, public engagement, all of the things that go into bringing together different technologies to creatively solve new problems. And um, so what I see happening now is a lot more of that creative focus on how do you take a technology that has now been demonstrated, we know we can do it safely and effectively, but how do we broaden the scope, broaden people's understanding of the scope? How do we deploy and advance CCUS to do what it's intended to do, which is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions so that we can address the increasing warming of the um, of uh, the global of global temperatures. Mm -hmm. So, if I break that down a little bit, that means um, things like there's a lot of projects, a lot of new projects going forward, and the need for projects to develop and to be larger in scale. Is, uh, is is significant and that's happening all over the world. Um, that's happening in the United States, that's happening in Australia, that's happening in Canada, that's happening in Norway, um, and a lot of other countries where CCUS has not been done at full scale or even pilot scale, they're also looking at the potential for uh, de deploying or engaging in CCUS. There's a lot of nuance around um, permitting and especially in the United States permitting in the offshore space. So if we, we have a regulatory framework that is well in place for onshore carbon capture and storage called the Underground Injection Control Program, but we have agencies right now in the United States who are looking at what are the rules and regulations for storing carbon dioxide offshore. So that's a big thing. There are 
um, again, in the United States, a lot of tax incentives that are being, have been established that accelerate or in incentivize the development of projects. So we see a lot happening there. There's, I think, a global conversation starting about the concepts of energy and environment and climate justice and who um, who bears the benefits, who bears the impacts of global climate change, but also of new technologies that are being established to, uh, to combat global climate change. So how do we equitably and fairly distribute benefits and um, potential impacts? Uh, and that's a conversation that's been happening, but I think it's going to keep expanding as it as it needs to. Um, and then there's Again, in the United States, there's a couple of uh, government White House Council of Environmental Quality task forces mm -hmm. that have just been established that will be looking at um, offering recommendations and guidance to the federal government on permitting but other aspects of CCUS governance in the United States. Um, so. I like to think of it as we've really, for the last 25 years, been focused on the same sets of, of categories or areas that need work, the technical aspect, the regulatory aspect, the social, the legal, um, the financial. But each time we get a bit deeper into uh, further along into different more projects or different aspects, it's like an onion and we need to peel away and it gets more complicated and but we have to continue to um, delve into each one of these categories until you get a robust system that enables you to uh, to guide CCUS. So that's where I think we are. I think we're deep in that. I don't think there's anything new. I think it's just more and more complex. With the growth of CCUS projects um, and all the things that you mentioned, can you talk about the importance of community and stakeholder engagement? Like when and where do you start? And if you had any lessons learned from your experiences that you could share with us? Sure. How much time do we have, Autumn? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so what, what Autumn knowingly is alluding to is that for the last 25 years, a big portion of what I have done in the CCUS space is not only lead projects, but um, lead in the area of stakeholder engagement. And um, and so I bring to this, this challenge a combination of physical science and social science. So my advanced degrees lie in both of those areas. There's a lot I could say about stakeholder engagement. The one thing I'll start with is that you cannot underestimate the importance of gaining perspective from multiple groups, anybody who has a stake in a, a potential set of activities, and this is not just related to CCUS, but life in general, um, but especially 
those stakeholder groups who may not automatically have a seat at the table or be involved in the discussion or groups or individuals who have traditionally been excluded from uh, conversations. And so I think that's a lot of what's happening in the energy, environmental, and climate justice space is making sure that we broaden and diversify the stakeholder conversation so that there are more groups at the table. What that means, however, is that it's more complicated. There's room, more room for disagreement. There's more room for um, a diverse and conflicting set of objectives and um, agendas. And but you know, we as human beings can deal with a lot of complexity, and we should be dealing with a lot of complexity. And so that's one of the things that I carry with me when I think about, talk about, and conduct stakeholder engagement is that we have to we have to be humans first, and we need to humanize the science and the technology that we are, um, that, that we're trying to engage with. And we have to engage, which means two-way listening and multiple conversations. Um, I like to say, that you know, we need to be able to hold conflicting ideas and thoughts and create a space where it is safe to exchange ideas. But at the end of the day, we don't necessarily have to agree on everything or, um, or even share the same rules and values for our lives. But we have to be able to decide as a society this is something that is important to us or what components of what we do, uh, of what we might be doing in terms of climate change mitigation are important to us. Um, so that's kind of the broad umbrella of stakeholder engagement and what I carry with me. Um, I think you need to be a good communicator and um, be able to break down scientific concepts in ways that are approachable and understandable. Don't use jargon. Um, you know, know your audience, who you're talking to. Um, I always sort of assume that I'm talking to my grandmother at a cocktail party, <laughs> and um, and that's kind of the level I go at, you know, with. Um, but not that my grandmother ever would have been caught dead at a cocktail party. Let me just be clear about that. But um, some some principles that. Um, uh, that I live by just to kind of summarize, summarize, and, and again, I could unpack this for many hours. Um, think about being inclusive. Um, think about emphasizing the need for organization of bottom-up um, uh, stakeholder engagement, but also some what needs to happen at the top that filters down. Um, it's important to let people speak for themselves uh, and to have voice and create situations where where voice different voices are heard. Uh, it's important to work together um, in solidarity and mutuality, build relationships. It's um, important to build foundations, speak in clear messages, 
create shared understanding about what it is that is important to everybody in the room. Um, establish processes by which stakeholder engagement happens, feedback happens, um, ideas get exchanged. And um, I'll tell a short little story about uh, a project, the FutureGen project, the original FutureGen project, this is a few decades ago now. Um, and I was at a meeting and somebody was showing a big aerial map of what the plant was gonna look like and where the driveway, the entrance was, and there was supposed to be an education center and all this stuff. So they have this map and they're showing this room of community members. And some guy raises his hand and he says, why do you have the entrance down there at the south? He's like, that's a corner that traditionally floods, has bad visibility. And if you have a lot of truck traffic, you know that, inter that gets interfered with because there's a railroad there. And if you moved it to the north, here's the advantage for this and the, you know, and, and the ways in which it improves things. And if you took the time to fix the farmer's field on the south end with that drainage problem, then that's a huge community benefit to everybody. So if that conversation had never happened, some engineer would have just put a point. I mean, his answer was literally like, yeah, we didn't know. We just put a place on the map right of, or of the photograph of where the entrance was going to be so there's some really really simple things that can get um decided and put into place by having these conversations and then that scales all the way up to the very very complicated um the last thing i'll emphasize is that stakeholder engagement is a is a long game mm -hmm. it's about building relationships, cultivating relationships, being in communities and being there repeatedly and knowing people by name and knowing um, what's important to people and and having them know that about you as well. And so really about, you know, this is a one-on-one, a -on -one, um, you know, 10 on 10 kind of uh, activity that doesn't happen in boardrooms, it doesn't happen um, accidentally, and uh, is just as important as all of the technology and um, uh, other components of establishing a system. And we're getting a lot better at it, uh, but it, I'll say this, it's, it's often not easy, and we have to, you know, but we have to just go with it and go for it and do those things because it's important. Yes, absolutely. What does the future hold for CCUS and CCS with regard to the energy transition um, and with this increased uh, focus on societal considerations? If you look at climate models, you um, you can't really get to our emission reduction targets without CCUS. Mm -hmm. um, when we start to think about an energy transition, and um, I like to remind everyone that we have not, that we're at the beginning of an energy transition. We are not 
through the energy transition. We have not completed the energy transition. This is the work of the next several decades and and a good place for young uh, career people to be thinking about. Um, And so CCUS has a place in that because um, well, for many reasons, as we transition potentially from from carbon-based fuels to hydrogen fuels, um, you know, we still have carbon emissions to deal with. Industry is not necessarily going to or can move away from activities that produce continue to produce carbon dioxide. Um, and you know, the way that I think about energy is the way I think about retirement. And that is that you have to have a balanced portfolio. You need all of the above options. So just like you need stocks and bonds and cash and and real estate investments, whatever's in your energy or your uh, retirement portfolio, we need that in our energy portfolio. We need wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, but we also need coal and oil and gas and nuclear and CCUS is part of that mix because we're not going to um, we're, we're not always going to be in a situation where we can just preference one particular uh, source of energy and we need that flexibility in our lives and in the world to be able to be resilient because that's a huge part of the climate conversation. Lastly, I would just say this, and that is that we in developing or developed, let me start over. Yep. Uh, let me let me conclude by saying this. We in developed Western countries who are focused on what we can do to mitigate global climate change have a responsibility to our to ourselves but we have a responsibility to greater society and we cannot dictate nor should we be in the position to dictate what other countries are going to decide with respect to their own countries and energy fuel sources and how they um, how they go about ensuring the health and safety for their for their society. So it becomes um, a complicated mix of do what we believe to be the right thing, but also how do we retain, increase our ability to be flexible, be resilient, and at the same time reduce reduce risk for uh, for society. And that's a place where I think we all have to get to is what is our major, major objective here? And that to me is the continuation of the human race on this planet and plant life and animal life so that our children and our grandchildren and their grandchildren uh, know know this world to be the way we've experienced it. But my, I'm going to say this, you can cut this out if you want, but as a geologist, deep time, you know, yeah. So as a geologist, deep time is, shows us that humans are not going to be here forever. So, so when we, when I think about 
global climate change, I think what is what does that mean to the human race? What does that mean to the planet as we know it? Not necessarily I'm saving the planet for the next hundred million years. Mm -hmm. Because in a hundred million years, I guarantee this planet looks different than it does right now. Mm -hmm. I know our listeners can't see it, but I'm nodding along to that wonderful <laughs> response. It was really great. Um, so to follow up with a couple of things that you hit on there, um, is that do you have any advice for students or young professionals that are interested in a career in CCUS or the energy transition? And, and what types of opportunities do you think will, will be coming out? I have a lot of advice. And if anybody catches me at a meeting or sees me, I'm happy to, happy to share that in, in detail. A few things. One is I go all the way back to that uh, advice that I got from Michelle Lukey at Alfred University, and that is focus on science mm -hmm. and have a, a deep understanding, get a science degree, get an engineering degree. There's a lot that you can leverage those degrees for, even if you don't intend to be a scientist or an engineer. Um, I think increasingly it's important for uh, students and early career people to be flexible in what you bring to the table and to be creative in how you compose your career. Be super, super deliberate about your career. Seek as many opportunities as you can but also do some things that stretch you, that are unusual. You know, take speaking uh, training courses or leadership classes or do the, you know, do things that are a little bit um, edgy out there because there's a lot of value in being able to be the person who can communicate about science in a room full of people who don't understand science or the reverse of that being the social person in a room full of scientists who's saying like wait a minute like let's think about this in another way so and um so, so just you know having come full circle in my own career now from the story i told you at the beginning to who i am today you never have you don't have any idea when something you learn is going to be useful. Mm -hmm. You know, like the organizational skills that I learned at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, still <laughs> useful. You know, I mean, like you just don't know where like the things that you do or learn um, come, come full circle for you. The other thing I would say is that for me, I feel like it's very easy especially in today's world with social media to be against things mm -hmm. and i feel like it is it feels personally to me like it has been hard worth it but hard to stand in the middle and to be objective and try to be solutions based mm -hmm. and i think that ability comes from a few things. One is playing the long game. 
and developing relationships and your network. I think it is um, learning to have a voice and using that voice for good, not evil. And um, I also think that a lot of really, really good change and work can happen from inside the tent. So one of the mistakes I think I made in my career was that I had a chip on my shoulder about industry and I didn't want to work for industry. And what I see now is that cut off a whole lot of possibilities for me in my career that would have been actually pretty fantastic. And I could have made a lot of change from within the system as opposed to railing from the system from the outside. Now, that's not who I am. I'm not railing against the system. But, you know, if you have a leadership position in industry and you're saying we need to change the way we do things and here's how we're going to do that, that's an incredibly influential and powerful space to be in. I think uh, a few other things, write well, speak well, get comfortable presenting in front of lots of, of people. This is something I would direct at undergraduates and graduate students. If you have the opportunity to be a teaching assistant, do it and make sure that you have the opportunity to week after week after week, get up in front of a group of people and explain something that you maybe just learned yourself the night before. But that desensitizes you to the, you know, being afraid of speaking in public is when you're facing you know, 25 undergraduates and you have to talk about igneous rocks and you know a half an inch about igneous rocks and they know an eighth of an inch, but that's it. You know? <laughs> and so I think, um, yeah, I just, and the, the last thing I would say is something that uh, a mentor of mine said to me, and that is that chance favors the prepared mind. And by that, I mean, be open to anything and, um, and recognize that opportunities will come to you because you are open to those opportunities. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Sally. That was, that was really great. Um, so to wrap up our podcast, could you please share with us what is next for you in your career? The big question. So this is a loaded question because <laughs> my, um, because my lovely co-hosts here know that <laughs> in a very short period of time, I will be retiring from um, the University of Illinois and the Illinois State Geological Survey where I've been for the last 30 years, mm -hmm. which has been an amazing platform for an amazing career. And um, I'm very grateful for all of the opportunities being at the Illinois State Geological Survey has provided for me. Mm -hmm. And for my own courage in stepping up into those opportunities and my whole CCUS career started from a random conversation in a hallway with Dr. Robert <laughs> Finley, who was like, yeah, we need somebody to do outreach. And I was like, Ooh, I could do that, mm -hmm. you know, and, and here we are today, mm -hmm. right? So you never know. Um, but uh, I will be retiring 
in um, just a, a month or two. I'm not sure when this will broadcast, but um, <laughs> and uh, cut that out. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I have set up a consultancy, Sally Greenberg Consulting LLC, and I will be doing all the things that I do now, but I will be doing them on a broader stage with many more clients and opportunity to engage in the CCUS space. I'm hoping to focus beyond CCUS and do more in the sustainability world. My consultancy really centers on three different areas, strategic advising, research and program evaluation, and thought leadership. So where we're you know, where are we headed and what do I have that contri can contribute to that is, is important to me. The thought leadership piece is really focused on this concept of humanizing science mm -hmm. and how do we start to blend perspectives instead of having these dichotomies between objective and subjective or science and non-science, technical and non-technical, what does it really look like when we utilize science to address global challenges? And, um, and so I'm you know, very excited. Many, many people who know me will still see me in all the regular places. And um, um, you, know, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on my own website at, at thesallyg.com. And yeah, just really um, looking forward to another decade of engaging in science that changes the world. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Sally. It's been amazing having you as a guest today. I feel like I just took a, a lecture. So thank you for this. This is gold. <laughs> really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. And I wish the two of you all the success with this podcast and mm. all the things that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Sally, 